as we think about help for our prayer lives, and that help is the Holy Spirit. There really is no such thing as a Christian life apart from an understanding of and a participation in the power of the Holy Spirit. As we have worked our way through this chapter in recent weeks, we have noted several works of the Holy Spirit in the believer. In verse 2, we note that he liberates. He is the spirit of life in Christ Jesus who sets us free. In verse 9, he indwells us. In verse 11, we are told he will raise our bodies and give life to them in the resurrection. In verse 13, he is the one who empowers us to put to death the deeds of the body. In verse 14, he leads us as sons of God. In verse 15, he encourages us as the spirit of adoption to address God as Abba. What an amazing thing. We may call God our Father. And then in verse 16, he witnesses. And the witness here is to our spirit and with our spirit that we are genuinely God's children. And now tonight in the text, verses 26 to 28, we see something more the Spirit does. And in the same way, writes the Apostle Paul, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts and knows, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The Holy Spirit has a work to do with regard to our praying. I want you to notice with me three insights to help us understand the importance of that truth. The first statement I want to make is that we have a weakness in prayer, which is pointed out to us in verse 26. I think most of us here tonight would be honest enough to confess that our prayer closet is also a battleground. There's probably not an area of our lives where we have more of a fight and a struggle than that of our prayer life. It is not easy because the enemy knows the strategic nature of prayer. And he knows that if he can stop us from praying, for whatever reason, he has successfully performed a preemptive strike against us, which neutralizes our spiritual power and effectiveness. So the prayer life is a battleground. We face the battle of laziness. We all do. We too often lack the discipline to pray as we know we should. We fight the battle of ignorance. We don't know the basics of prayer sometimes. With respect to the content of what we ought to pray, we don't know perhaps the basics about the prerequisites of prayer. What is necessary on our part so that we can pray effectively. So we fight the battle of ignorance. And then we fight the battle of discouragement. Answers 
come but not as expected or answers don't come as much as we can see it. And we get to feeling that there must be something about us that we're not good enough or that our prayers for some reason are not getting through and we become discouraged with praying. Those are battles that all of us face from time to time. But there is another difficulty even when these battles may be won. This is a universal difficulty. It's the difficulty of weakness in praying. In verse 26 we read, The Spirit helps our weakness. What is that weakness? We do not know how to pray as we should. That is the weakness. Now Paul is not speaking here about failing to know the content of prayer in a general way. That's a problem, that's a battle, we've already suggested that. But he is saying that we as human beings have this weakness that we do not know the specifics to ask for in every given situation. Literally he says, for we do not know the what to pray for. That is, we do not know the particular requests that we can, should always offer to God as we ought. We do not know, because of our human weaknesses, what is necessary in cases that uh, we pray about, what the need is at the moment. I am learning, and I am sorry to say slowly learning, that when God wakes me up at night, that there's usually a reason for that. Now, if it's the kids waking me up, I don't think there's a reason for that. That's justified. But if God wakes me up, he must have a reason for that. A few days ago, I laid awake. I woke up about 4 o'clock. I don't even remember now what woke me up. But as I laid there, I, I began to meditate on the things of God. And God brought to my mind a number of different people to pray for some in our church, some of our missionaries, some situations I'm concerned about. And so I was able to utilize those times. I believe that God may very well awaken us from our sleep. Apparently he knows we don't need it as badly as we think we do. And so he wakens us to use us as channels of prayer. But the problem we have is that we don't know exactly what we're praying for. Missionary X is laid in our hearts. What's the need with him there on the other side of the world? I don't know. But it is no accident that his name or her name has come to my mind. But my weakness is that I don't know how to pray, the what to pray for as I ought. This weakness is no excuse for not praying, as we're going to see, but it is a weakness. Now, the second insight we have is that we have a helper in prayer, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit that God has sent from heaven, verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. He says, in the same way he does. That is, in the same way that he encourages us to pray in the first place and call God Father, to address him as Abba, that familiar term, of the little child speaking to his father. 
In the same way that he encourages us to pray in the first place, he also helps us to pray. This word help means to lend a hand together with. It's several Greek words all scrunched together to come up with this. It is found only one other time in the New Testament. And that is in Luke 10.40. And you will remember the occasion when Jesus and others were in the house of Mary and Martha. And Martha was sitting there at Jesus' feet, listening to the teaching of the Lord. And Mary, as was her womanly custom, was out there in the kitchen, banging pots and pans together, getting things ready for this feast that she was going to have to cook and to serve. And she got a little upset at Sister Mary. And she came in and she complained to Jesus about it. And said, in essence, Lord, why don't you send her out there to help me? But that word help, to lend a hand together with me, is the same word used here of the Holy Spirit. He comes into the kitchen and he helps us in our prayer life. He lends a hand with our praying. Not only that, But it says in the last part of verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The word intercedes means to plead on behalf of another. Not only does our Savior, the Lord Jesus, stand in heaven perpetually praying for us in his high priesthood, but we have one who indwells us, who likewise pleads on our behalf continually, Actively, persistently, he pleads on our behalf. And it says here that he pleads with unuttered groanings, with sighs that are substitute for words. There's absolutely no thought here regarding glossolalia or the gift of tongues that some people read into this verse. This is something that is inaudible to the human ear, but which is well heard by the ear of our Heavenly Father, as the Holy Spirit groans within us. Now, we have learned earlier that nature groans, waiting its redemption. We groan, likewise, eagerly anticipating our adoption as sons, that is, the redemption of our bodies. And now we learn that the Spirit of God groans within us. And with unuttered words, with sighs, as it were, he brings to God requests on our behalf. Thank God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have a helper in prayer who can show us how to pray. And when we miss the mark in knowing what to ask, he groans through us. To the Father. The result of that is, third insight, we have a confidence in prayer, verses 27 and 28. Because it says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Question Who is he who searches the hearts? Well, there are many commentators who believe it is the Father. It's not worth arguing about, but my personal understanding of this is that it is the Son. That it is the Lord Jesus who searches the hearts. For we read in Revelation 2.23, All the churches will know that I am He, says Jesus, who searches the minds and the hearts. 
I believe it is our Savior, our great high priest, who searches our hearts. And it says that he knows the desires, the wishes, the mind of the Spirit. Because continually he is examining, searching out the mind of the Spirit who is interceding for the saints. It says, according to the will of God. So that when I cannot even verbalize praying prayers, or when I don't have time in the midst of uh, some crisis to utter a prayer, the Spirit of the Lord is continually offering up requests on my behalf according to the will of God, and the Son of God searching the mind of the Spirit sees that and lifts it to the Father so that even without my participation... In those cases, even, there is prayer offered on my behalf and your behalf. What a great confidence that is in prayer. But there is another confidence, and that is, in verse 28, that the Father, then, hearing those requests, works all things out for good. I suppose almost everyone here tonight can quote verse 28. We know, we know from our experience that God causes all things to work together for good. I remind you, he is not saying here that everything is good in and of itself. That is not what verse 28 says. But it is saying that God brings all the pieces of our lives, the good and the bad as we evaluate them. He brings them all together and brings them out to a beneficial end. That's the point. So that there is nothing that comes into my life but that it passes through the hands of my Heavenly Father. And He allows them to come to accomplish His good purpose in our lives. And that purpose primarily is that we might be like Christ. And so as the Holy Spirit prays, basically what He's saying is, Lord, Father, I pray that you'll make this character like Christ. And the Lord Jesus hears that request and the Father then answers that prayer perfectly in my life and in yours. That is, if we are those, who it says in verse 28, who love God. Now that's not some general human kind of love like 90% of Americans have for God. I mean, if you believe in God, you don't hate God usually. Now, I was talking here about that love relationship that has been established with God through a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Those who love God. We don't love God for, first. He loves us first, and we love Him, right? We love Him because He first loved us. And what did He do? He gave His Son for us. We love God, and we are those who are called according to His purpose. And again, that purpose is further uh, elaborated upon in the following verses, and we will come to that in time to come. I see the Father working here like a pharmacist. This would be a good example for you pharmacists in our church, and we have some. There are certain ingredients that you handle, which uh, by themselves or in larger doses would kill the patient. But you have a prescription in your hands that you fill. And the result is that you take the right amounts of this and that until you put it all together. You carefully measure it. 
you mix it so that the result is medicine, not poison. And that's what our Father does with the things that come into our lives because of the perpetual intercession of the Spirit and of the Son on our behalf. Let me just close with three thoughts about application. Number one, we need to establish the priority of our prayer time. And if that slipped in our lives, then let's put it back up at the top where it belongs. Let's not allow Satan to strike preemptively and cut off our power and cut off the blessing. But let's establish and maintain the priority of our praying. Secondly, as we pray, let's depend upon our helper to do his job. That's why he's there, to help us in praying. And so let us pray in the Spirit, that is, consciously depending upon the Spirit as we pray. And not rushing into prayer and offering up to God requests on our own, but pausing long enough at the beginning of our praying to ask the Holy Spirit to quicken us, to enable us, to empower us, to enlighten us. Let's let Him do His work in us. Let's listen quietly to Him. Let's search the Word that He's inspired and let Him bring truths to us that we need to pray about. And then number three, we need to relax in God's sovereign work and His loving purpose in our life's circumstances. What a wonderful application we have there in verse 28. As we come to the table tonight, we are reminded that the Comforter has come because of the work, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Had He not completely finished the work of redemption so that the Father was satisfied and accepted it, the Spirit would not have come. There would have been no Pentecost. The fact that there was a Pentecost when the Spirit came signified the fact that our Savior went back to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, His saving work, that is, His sacrificed body, His shed blood, being finished and being acceptable to God. And now God was sending the Spirit as a testimony of His Son's acceptance in heaven. So as we come to the table tonight, I'd like for us to bow together in searching prayer, uh, thanking God for the ministry of the Holy Spirit and asking Him in the quietness of these moments to prepare us that we might come to this table of the Lord in a worthy manner. That is, our hearts cleansed and prepared to partake of this significant ordinance. And I'll ask those who are serving to join me in the front while we're bowed in silent prayer. Father, thank you for the Comforter. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for his ministry in our lives and for that prayer ministry 
in which he helps us to pray and groans through us, intercedes in our behalf according to your perfect will. And Father, we're thankful for what his coming signifies that it's real proof in the world today that the sacrifice of the Savior was accepted in heaven, that his work is finished with regards to sin. As we pause around this table tonight, as a church family and other friends who are here who know the Lord, who are trusting in Christ, we offer unto you thanks, for we remember that the Lord Jesus there at that Passover meal first of all took the bread and gave thanks for it, reminding us that it symbolizes to us his body. And so we partake remembering with gratitude that sacrifice. Amen. Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And once more, our Lord, Lamb of glory, do we bow to thank you for the fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Thank you for the blood represented by this cup. As we partake, we do so remembering with gratitude. Amen. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Don't you look forward to that day when we will sit at the table with him in heaven and partake of that great married supper of the Lamb. Would you please take your hymnals? I'd like for us to sing in closing 165. May I remind you that upon our departure, as is our custom, there will be an offering received for benevolence. Uh, for which we do have uh, regular needs, and we thank you for participating in that cash offering used for those who have financial needs. There will be an usher there to assist you with that. And now let's sing together, Hallelujah, What a Savior, this great hymn by Philip Bliss. You know, when I get to heaven, there's a whole lot of people I want to see, but Philip Bliss is one of them one of the great men of God of the last century. One of my burdens is that we as a church might learn more about some of the great saints of God in past generations. Uh, and particularly, I'm thinking of musicians in the last century or two. And I'm hoping that we might be able to put together a, a drama group that uh, through two or three skits and an evening service would be able to present to us some of the scenes of the life of a man like Philip Bliss. I've talked with John uh, about this, and he's excited about it. And that'll be something, God willing, that'll be happening about once a quarter 
starting here, uh, well, maybe this fall, at least the first of the year. Bliss is going to be one of the first ones. You know, Philip Bliss and his wife had two children. And God greatly blessed and used his ministry. When uh, they were both in their late 30s, he was 38, I'm not sure of the age of his wife, they had gone to visit his mother in Pennsylvania for Christmas. And uh, Bliss had some work, I think, with Dwight Moody to take care of back in Chicago. So they left the children there in Pennsylvania, and he and his wife took a train. And just outside of uh, Ashtabula, Ohio, the train had a wreck. And uh, their car went down into a ravine. Uh, Bliss was able to escape the fire that immediately followed but he couldn't find his wife. And this man of God, that God was so greatly using, went back in the train and found his wife, and she was trapped and was going to die. And he chose to stay in the train with her. And they perished together in 1876. You know, it's people like that that we can't lose sight of because they were great in their day. People who knew God and walked with him. And so whenever I see his name beside him, it always means something a little special to me. So uh, with that thought about him in mind, I'd like for you to sing with me this truth that he bore from his own poetic heart. He wrote the music for this too. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's stand together as we sing. Thank you. 
all of God's people said, Amen. Good night.